0: Parkway Elementary School are set to begin the school year September 3rd. Some students will be finding their seats in kindergarten classrooms or first grade ones, some in second, third, fourth, or fifth grade ones. But some students will be entering multi-grade classrooms. Multi-grade classrooms, kindergarten slash first, second slash third, fourth slash fifth, have students in two different grades sharing a teacher. Depending on the subject, students will be placed based on grade or skill level. So reading will be done by skill, social studies by grade. It all boils down to issues with staffing. Parkway had 12 teachers last year. Three of them were contingency teachers. This year, they only have nine. To combat large classrooms, which many parents requested, the Frederick County Public Schools system decided to do multi-grade classrooms. It did not necessarily quell parental concerns. Education reporter Katrina Pereira joins me to talk about multi-grade classrooms and staffing concerns at elementary schools like Parkway. Then a couple parents will join me to talk a little bit about what this means for their children. All right, Katrina, I guess just to start off, let's explain what multi-grade classrooms are.
1: Sure. So multi-grade classrooms are a classroom that incorporates students from multiple grades. So... At Parkway, they're going to do a K and a 1 classroom. So that will have some kindergartners, some first graders. They're going to do a 2 and a 3, some second graders, some third graders, and a 4 and a 5.
0: All right. And so if I'm in kindergarten, I go to a kindergarten and first grade classroom. Am I still learning what I'm going to learn in kindergarten? Do I learn some first grade information?
1: Yes. So your curriculum, for the most part, is not going to change depending on what grade you're in um with that being said if a student let's say who's in the two three class let's say a second grader exhibits a higher level of reading comprehension uh you know they might be placed into a group with some of the third graders in order to match their skill set and match uh you know their ability
0: and so where did this idea multi-grade classrooms come from or rather <laughs> what made Frederick County Public School system start considering multi-grade classrooms
1: so a lot of it from what i've been hearing has to do with uh some staffing issues and the ability of schools to staff their buildings adequately um With Parkway's situation, normally they, in the past, they've had 12 teachers. Uh, This year, they were only able to get nine. And due to that reason, they had to sort of mix up their classes a little bit and, you know, make it work with three less teachers, which is where the multi-grade classrooms came in.
0: All right. And in talking with parents and the school system, do people seem happy by this choice?
1: It depends on the school that you talk to. Um, Obviously, a lot of people at Parkway are very upset. There's a lot of concerns that come in with a multi-degree classroom, you know, especially uh, with the students that are going to be in those classes. Social issues, you know, confidence levels. And then you're concerned about the teachers. How are they going to um, handle having two different curriculums, two different groups of students? Um, But then you go over to somewhere like Wolfsville, and they've had not just multi-grade but mixing age groups across the grade levels you know for a year now and they seem to love it so different reactions across the county
0: and so this is something that's being done at how many schools now
1: Um, i believe it's going to be 10 this year and it's just an elementary school As far as I know, yes.
0: And so this has to do with staffing you mentioned. So is it trying to keep down the classroom sizes?
1: Yeah, that's definitely one of the goals. Um, You know, there's classroom ratios that are implemented uh, for each grade level as well as each school, you know, elementary, middle, high school. Um, So the goal is always to keep class sizes as low as possible. Um, And, you know, you don't have equal amounts of students in each grade. So sometimes multi-grade may need to be implemented in order to mix and match a little bit and keep those class size ratios at an optimal level.
0: And so you mentioned that Parkway had 12 teachers last year, but now they only have nine. What happened to those three teachers?
1: So from what I understand, those three teachers previously were contingency hires. Uh, Those are hires that the school system keeps sort of on a back burner and they uh, place them, as the school year approaches, they place them out to schools that they see needs in. Um, Parkway always needed those extra three teachers to, again, staff their school adequately. And this year they just weren't able to get those extra three.
0: And so with talking to parents, most of them, what are the most, Sorry, in talking to parents, what are they most concerned by?
1: One of the biggest things I've heard from parents is the social effect that this is going to have on students. Um, You know, a lot of parents are concerned that, okay, well, my kid is in a, let's say a three, four, they're a fourth grader. Now they're in a class with third graders. Does that mean that they're going to feel like they're not smart, that they're getting mixed in with younger kids? You know, that that third grader is now learning in the same reading group as them, what is What is my fourth grader going to feel? Does my fourth grader, you know, going to feel like, oh my gosh, you know, my reading level is on the same level as a third grader. Am I not doing well enough in school? That sort of thing. On the other end, um, parents of the younger students, you know, maybe a third grader in a three, four class are worried about, are they going to be okay with being with older kids? You know, is it going to be intimidating to them? How are they going to take it? Um, One parent came up during the board meeting and during public comment and said her child is in one of these multi classrooms this year and is having a lot of anxiety about the first day of school and how she's going to handle that. So definitely a lot of emotional and social concerns being shared.
0: All right, perfect. Well, thank you so much for explaining more about this. Thank you. So first off, can I get you guys both to say your names for me? Andrea Aldsorn.
2: Eric Jones.
0: All right, and um, where do your children attend? Parkway Elementary.
2: Uh, Mine are also at Parkway, and I have one in Frederick High School.
0: All right. So tell me a little bit about what's going on with the elementary schools and why you guys got involved.
3: Um, Back in April, the end of April, we received an email from our PTA saying that um, if you're concerned about the classroom sizes, please attend the PTA meeting. So a bunch of people attended. Um, I believe it was, and I have the date. May 7th, Tuesday, May 7th, and at that meeting we were told, I have a kindergarten going into first grade, that she would be one of 37 students in one classroom. So that's concerning, and Eric also has a future kindergartner who he can tell you about the class sizes that he was concerned about, Um, and I can let him take over from there with that one.
2: Uh, Yeah, sure. The uh, I guess a couple of years ago, my my older daughter, who is going into second grade now, when she went into kindergarten, her class size was uh, already at 30, and it hovered, you know, 30, you know, plus or minus, you know, one, you know, uh, but pretty much throughout the whole school year, it was uh, exceedingly high, and we, uh, you know, in the, from the beginning in August, like, you know, this is a problem, like, why aren't we getting another teacher in here? But, the response was mostly that it was too late to do anything. Um, so as you know, my next kid was going into preschool and, uh, or, or into kindergarten, we wanted to be, we're a little more mindful and we're hoping to get um, a little more heads up for a larger class size so that we could, you know, have some time to get organized and, you know, uh, bring some attention to um, what was happening. And yeah, so then, uh, at least this time instead of finding out in the fall, Uh, a couple weeks before school we find out in the spring.
0: So I guess just, you know, why is it an issue if your kids have, uh, are in a classroom with 36 kids or
3: 30 kids? Um, I can speak personally to that. I had my older daughter who's going into third grade had a bullying concern last year and she was in a class size of 26, 27 at that time. And um, she w- they were having a hard time keeping an eye on just this one kid. He was disrupting the whole entire classroom. So I just figured you add in 10 more kids in first grade and you've got an even bigger issue. The other concern is um, I've had parents tell me, like they have um, a child with allergies, severe peanut allergies, and if there's not good hand washing after after lunch, then next thing you know that kid has a severe reaction um so you add more kids and that becomes more of an issue um the other issue is i've had a lot of parents that have told me you know to mention today um their kids have 504s or ieps and they're worried about those being held um accountable for everything that they've been promised extra time um you know with their diagnosis that they may have they need various different things that they're worried are going to be slip that are going to slip through the cracks
2: man i don't i don't think anyone can reasonably argue that uh, you know having a smaller class size isn't beneficial and you know maybe you you lose some gains as you know as you get below i don't know 15 or so but you know 25 which is the ideal or what kind of like the model class size that the school system has set up currently it's still maybe a little bit is it's certainly on the larger size of classrooms especially at the kindergarten first grade the primary levels um but the problem that we ran into is that that's like the median you know that they're aiming for 24 25 kids per class but the conditions you know occur in like the distribution of kids and the number of students or teachers that are assigned to that school such that they just don't have enough or a, a good way to to split and evenly divide the number of teachers that they have across all of the grade levels, and so you know gaps are formed in the in the equation, and that's where we ended up. You know, in this in this case with a you know very large class sizes, which are also balanced out by nice class sizes of maybe you know fifteen to twenty.
0: And so, what's going on with this possible
3: multi-grade system? Is this so, a way to uh, will this help or worsen the problem? Um, I feel like they're gonna harm the situation because what's happening is we're told that they're gonna have and I, I can't even remember but like five or six different teachers throughout the day and that's not even including specials um, so they're transitioning all over the day and the teachers aren't used to it and the and the students aren't used to it um, they're used to a little transition but not this much transition and I, I you know people say you've got like the Montessori school that does this, and but they're trained for it, and they're used to it, and the, the teachers are so equipped to handle this the right way. Where our teachers just found out about this the end of May, and they were being told, oh, we'll do the training over the summer to get you guys ready for it. So there's just a worry that the teachers are putting on a happy face, and I think they're gonna do the best they can and rise to the occasion, because Parkway has great teachers, they really do, but I feel like there's gonna be some burnout I feel like the teachers are going to do the best they can, but they're going to have to teach two curriculums every day because they're going to have to teach, for example, kindergarten and first grade. Not just kindergarten or not just first grade. They're going to have to teach both for social studies and for science. Um, My understanding is they're doing smaller reading groups, so that shouldn't be a problem, that part of it. But the part I think that concerns me as... um, a parent that doesn't have a kid with any special needs, but still just needs to learn and be challenged, is the fact that they'll be in a class with possibly learning a different curriculum that they're not supposed to be learning at the time. I, it just seems like a lot.
0: So, if I understand, so if I am a student in the the in a classroom right now in one of these schools, I could. Is it based on if I read at a third grade level, I'm now with third grade. Students, um, or if I do math at a first grade level, I stay at first grade. How does it work?
3: I'm not quite sure. I, I know the splits, for example, are there's, of course, one kindergarten class, and then there's a kindergarten first grade class, and then there's a first grade class, and then there's a two, a, a second grade class, and a two, three split, a third grade class, fourth grade class, four, five split, and then a fifth grade class. Um, they don't really seem to have all the answers for that question. To be honest with you, we asked many questions at the last meeting we had at Parkway. Um, I don't think they quite know all the answers on how they're going to do everything yet. Is what I gather, being at meetings. So that's really a hard question to answer because it just seemed like they're still trying to figure everything out.
2: I mean, when when I when I was in school, I, I remember, you know, when I realized that there was you know, some of my peers were in different groups and reading levels than I was. And, uh, you know, they got the books with the smaller letters and I still had, you know, my fat pencil and, you know, big letters and, you know, and I, and, you know, I, I get that that's, you know, that's, you know, at that level, you know, everyone's coming in from, you know, who knows if they, if they went to preschool or whatnot. And so the, you know, break them up at, you know, that age and so they can model, uh, the curriculum closer to them and, and give them the appropriate, you know, instruction, uh, aids for that. And so in, you know, my understanding is like, you know, in elementary school, there is a lot of group learning and breaking them up. Um, they don't always put names to them or, you know, highlight if they're on the higher level or the lower level of the spectrum. In these multi-grade classrooms, the school hasn't made clear if they're p- putting the lower level, um, uh, you know, students into like the lower level classroom or vice versa, the higher achieving students may be going into the split class with the third graders or however it is. And, and maybe it's just by numbers, like, you know, how what's a convenient group setting. I'm generally indifferent to the idea of split classrooms myself uh, as, you know, as a teaching model or you know, as, as something that's maybe appropriate for, like a country school, that's you know much smaller, uh, and they just you know can't supply you know a teacher to teach five kids or at a certain grade level. I don't think that's a situation we're at here in the city. Uh, there's plenty of kids to be taught. And It's just a matter of you know uh, giving the appropriate resources to do so.
0: And so right now, so you both have children that are going into school in less than two weeks. Yeah. So do you, are they going into a traditional classroom model, or do you have this split classroom happening already?
2: I, you know, uh, the, the principal, and we've, we've worked close with, with the principal in our school, uh, and she has, you know, reached out to everyone that would be, you know, every parent whose students will be going into a split classroom because only some of them are going. There's only three out of the, you know, nine classes that will be split.
4: Uh, my name is Ed Martinez. Uh, I got involved with this process uh, through their name through our neighbors when they told me what's going on at Parkway Elementary. Uh, my son will be attending kindergarten in the fall.
0: All right. Um, so we were just talking a little bit about the um, the split cl- uh, mm-hmm. split grade classes. So can you tell us a little bit about how you feel about these?
4: I think the split grade classes, um, the way it's being implemented, is uh, problematic. the The situation is that. They uh, the school ended up with a teacher shortage, and as a result for that, a result of that teacher shortage, they are implementing a split grade classroom in order to control the population, as opposed to using it for academic reasons. So there's an argument that is being proposed: that split grade classes um, have uh, academic benefits, such as the Montessori system and so on, which is great if that was the actual intent and plan for this. Uh, for this the situation in Parkway and in other elementary schools around the county uh, but unfortunately that's not that wasn't a plan that was not the intent uh, what's happening here is this is an ad hoc you know attempt to solve a teacher shortage problem
0: and so just since everyone's mentioned teacher shortages a little bit is there any indication about what's going on that there why there is a teacher shortage
2: oh yes yes uh, <laughs> and it and it's it's comp it's a little complex uh, I, I believe it to be the uh, you know the number of teachers assigned to a school are is calculated upon based upon the entire school's population. So it's not, you know, if a kindergarten has forty students, they don't get, you know, uh, they're not accounted for individually on, on their own. They 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 go into the whole for that school. And in Parkway's situation, and what happens with many small schools is that, you know, for Parkway it's like two hundred and twenty thirty kids in there. And they they run that through the formula, you know, as a whole, 230 kids. And it comes out with a number. And in this case, it's nine. Well, you can't, when every classroom is at that 40 or 30 plus level, uh, you can't appropriately uh, distribute those nine teachers across six grades evenly. When, if that equation was applied, maybe more specifically to each grade level, it would have come out, every grade probably would have rounded up to, you know, two teachers. And so 12 would have been the case. Uh, this happens every single year. And so this isn't a new problem. However, and the, what the school system has done in the past is they've filled the obvious gaps of the, of the teachers with contingency positions. And those are, you know, they're budgeted for, they, you know, are, they, uh, kind of hand them out at the end of the, you know, uh, towards, you know, sometime in summer and say, you know, I need a teacher here, I need a teacher there, you know, and it, and it, it significantly helps Parkway because of the size, but it helps many other small schools.
3: Yeah, like we've had we had three contingency hires this year, is what it, my understanding is. So we had twelve teachers. Um, our enrollment was projected to go up only five students, but it was projected to go up, and somehow we lost three teachers. We lost those contingency hires, and that's where we're that's why we're at the position we're at now, is because of those contingency hires that we had.
4: And the reason we lost these contingency hires was there was a change in policy from the administration in D.C. um, on how they will interpret the use of Title I funds. Uh, What has historically uh, occurred is that Title I funds uh, could be used for these contingency hires across the entire county. Um, The new interpretation basically restricts the use of Title I funds uh, and therefore limiting the use of the resources the county does have as a result um they cannot just apply the contingency teachers as they have done in the past the the reasoning is because then if they plan to use contingency teachers as full-time teaching positions uh, which uh, they have historically done then they are in effect uh supplanting uh title one federal funds uh Instead of using those Title One federal funds to supplement the existing staff, the existing budget. Um, so while the county needs a more flexible ratio calculation that Eric's been working on, um, and other parents have been working on, and the school and, and the school board has admitted that they need more flexibility and have been very good work to work with us to come up with a more flexible solution. At the end of the day, even if we come up with a more flexible solution, we still need to have the funding to st- to to pay for those additional teachers, um, and that's going to require you know some additional work.
0: And so, with this um, multi-grade classroom, so the ones that do have the split, um, what where is this affecting? Is it aff- is it affecting so like social studies and language studies, all that? I
3: think it pretty much affects everything. Um, for instance, I know the librarian is being taken out of her role for four hours out of her day so that she can, I, my understanding is, is to teach social studies and science. And I'm not 100% sure about that. But like I said before, a lot of the meetings that we've had, no one seems to really have like cut clear answers to tell us how the day is going to go. I mean, we're trying to get a mental picture of what's going to be happening with our children. Even the ones that I don't think are in the split classrooms, even the ones that are in traditional classrooms, it's just going to be a lot of switching around all day. Um, They're doing what are called clusters, is what they're telling us. So kindergarten and first grade is going to be a cluster, and so on, you know, second and third, fourth and fifth. Um, And with those clusters, they're going to have a lot of children out on the playground that are in three different classes with only three different teachers, which that's a big concern I've had from the beginning, and I just simply asked the superintendent, can we get more aids just to help out to supervise all these children on the playground at one time? It just seems like a lot um, of kids running around on the playground at one time, and and I like I mentioned before about allergies, there's other other people who have concerns with allergies, um, that many kids to manage in the, in the lunchroom, making sure there's good hand washing after they've eaten so that somebody doesn't have a severe allergic reaction. It's just going from 12 teachers to 9 teachers with projected more students just seems like it's going to be a hectic day. And I feel like the, the teachers at Parkway are already putting on many different hats and many different roles as it was this past year. With what we felt like was a fully staffed, you know, school, which is obviously debatable, but you know, it's we just feel like we're just asking for the bare minimum of 12 teachers. That's all we want.
0: So you you mentioned there are a lot of questions that you've asked but haven't gotten answers. So what are some of those questions?
3: Um, I personally have asked Steve Raff, who is the elementary instructional director, who is um, the principal's boss. Um, many times for hard data, hard facts on how past split classrooms have done in the county. And we understand that Wolfsville has done it, but my understanding is, and, and I, I've actually talked to some teacher friends, so I'm not just pulling this out of nowhere, um, and I wrote a lot of it down. They were telling me that um, Wolfsville, for instance, was, um, was accelerated students, So they actually got good results, but that was just because it was a small bunch of accelerated students, so of course the results are going to be good. But no one talks about Myersville, and apparently Myersville has done multi-grade classrooms, and no one is giving us any of the results from Myersville. And we speculate and wonder, is that because things were okay, things didn't go well. Like, we don't want okay, we want our kids to learn, we want them to do well, we want them to be the best they can be. We don't just want, it went well, it was okay. And we all feel right now, like, a lot of parents have said to me, I feel like this is an experiment. We feel like our children are being experimented on with this. Because no one's giving us hard facts and data on how this has worked in the past in FCPS. The only results we end up hearing about are past, outdated, like 1980s, 1990s. Um, this this was good back in the 80s. This, this is what happened, and multi-grade classrooms are great, but we're not hearing any new, recent, relative you know, to where we live, information on how well this has gone.
4: One of the things, I don't know if you guys already discussed this, but one of the things um, th- that raise a red flag to me was when the initial teacher allocation numbers were given to the school, so nine teachers to Parkway specifically, but to the other schools as well, the principal took those numbers and sat with her staff, and they determined what was the best solution given the resources they had. And the solution that they came up with was to reject the multi-grade level classrooms and to just have larger numbers of kids in the classroom. Which, is at what po- was the initial, which was the initial trigger for the parents to say, wait a second, we're going to have 37 kids in, first, in kindergarten? Was it kindergarten? First grade. First yeah. grade. Um, and, and that's when the parents started getting involved and asking questions. So the response from the school board at the time was, um, okay, well, we'll do multi-level grade classrooms uh, to, to lower the class size. But the teachers had already rejected that idea. Like that was something that they did not want to do to begin with and now they're saying is the solution. So that raises a lot of red flags for us um, as far as the appropriateness of this multi-grade classroom. Now, that being said, while I'm not happy with the results for next year, I do think that Parkway staff is doing the best they can with the resources they're given and they have communicated to us as best they can Given the, the the changing situation that's going on, but at the end of the day, um, we're going to need a more flexible uh, student teacher ratio model, uh, and we're going to need additional funding to f- to fund those positions.
0: So explain a little bit. How does this multi grade classroom actually address the numbers? Because I imagine if you have class sizes, you still have the same amount of students, even if you put some in a split level classroom, even or uh, as you would if you had first, yeah. right. Traditional.
3: My understanding is is that it was originally, um, I guess you've got one kindergarten class. I think it's going to be like twenty, and then twenty five. Is it twenty five? Okay, I wasn't sure. And then there's a K one split, and I know I'm pretty sure that one is twenty. So that kind of makes it smaller classrooms. Um, of course, you're blending in different grades, but and then first grade. I can't remember the exact size, but I think it's going to be about, it might be like 25, give or take, something like that. So they're still kind of larger class sizes. They're not at the – now, I know we don't necessarily care if it's right where they want it to be with the numbers, but it's really – I think FCPS wants – their formula is supposed to calculate for 24 for a classroom. Kindergarten, I think, is 23. Um, so they're still actually a little bit above, but, um, they're still pretty good sized classrooms with that. I mean, it's, but it cuts it down a little bit, but it's, I don't know if you guys can explain it better.
2: So, uh, I mean, with, without the multigrade classroom, um, you know, and say, you know, all of every grade level at Parkway was at like, you know, from 35 to like 45. And so with just nine teachers coming in there, the largest class of 45, you know, student class, they would get split into two classes and, you know, of, uh, 22 or so. Um, but for every one, a student that they don't, uh, that teacher isn't serving at that 24, you know, median or ideal value, that has to be kind of pushed onto another class that has to absorb that in, into the equation there. Uh, so... With only nine teachers and say, you know, fourth and fifth are at, you know, are the, are the highest, they get, you know, they'll end up with nice class sizes of, you know, in the lower 20s. But then that smallest class, say it was 35 and, or, you know, or, or the smallest three grade levels, they're just going to be uh, stuck as, you know, as big as they are because they weren't big enough to be the largest or, you know, the largest three out of six and, um, and so the multigrade classroom allows the teachers uh, and the principal the flexibility to, you know, pull students from one grade that's you know that is uh, you know has better you know, that's being overserved by by the teacher, and distribute them into another grade that's being underserved and gives them more flexibility. And it's, uh, I mean, it's in this case it's necessary if they if there is no ability to assign a teacher. And there was, you know, uh, the school system, you know, refused to go down that path. Uh, then this is the way that you even even things out and get it so at least you'd, you, know, are meeting uh, space limitations uh, of you know the classroom size and and fire codes and, and safety. But at at what cost? And it's probably, you know, the uh, <clears throat> you know the academic academic environment has has changed. You know, I I mean, hopefully not for the worst, but it is different. The teachers haven't been prepared or or have had the experience in the past, you know, working in this this kind of environment. So it's it's gonna be uh, harder for them, harder for the students. Um, Both of my girls at Parkway will be in split classrooms. I'm okay with that because I, I believe in the teachers that we have there and that they're gonna do their best and they have a strong support system at home not everybody, you know, may be entitled to that or, or, or has that access.
0: And what about um, some of the more in, uh, emotional aspects of it? Are you worried about kids who, you know, kids mature at different levels, but yeah. kids who are in second grade and third grade or fourth and fifth grade being slightly off in maturity levels and now yeah. having to?
2: So that, yeah, you know, the, the student, you know, that is in fifth grade, but he's being put into the mixed class with fourth graders, i mean i don't I, I don't know how that you know is going to help their esteem. I hope they look at it in a way and that you know I can be a leader in this in this classroom and maybe a mentor to the younger students um, and then also you know the reverse is also true on the on the younger half. Um, they might feel intimidated with these kids other these older kids there um, so I, I i don't know we'll see how it plays out. I know for my kindergartner who is you know, going to be in a classroom with first graders, she'll be okay because she has a late birthday and she has an older sister and she's, her situation is, you know, not everyone else's. Uh, or, you know, we we are okay with that. Um, and she will do well, I believe. But it'll it'll impact some kids.
3: I, w- I was worried about that before we found out, um, you know, where our children were going to be placed. Um, my daughter came home that week and said, my kindergartner going into first grade said, "Hey mom, you know, Miss Grupa says I'm ready for first grade." And I'm like, "Okay, we don't know where you're going to be next year, but you know, you're going to be first grader." Yeah. And it it caused me a little anxiety thinking, here she is, she's being told she's ready for first grade and she is and she still would be doing a first grade curriculum but I don't know mentally how that plays on her. Um, Their minds are so young, we don't know how they think, and you know they could be holding something in and it could be bothering them and we might never know, but um, I do worry about that. Um, I worry about the bullying, like I mentioned earlier, we've had in the past. I worry about that being a problem with younger ones being with older ones. That could certainly happen, and it could happen in a traditional classroom as well, but as I've seen, but The biggest thing is I I worry about self-esteem, I worry about the anxiety. Um, We had a parent that came to the Board of Ed meeting the other day and she said her daughter is gonna be in a split classroom and she's always so excited to go to school, but this year she's not excited, she's got anxiety going, you know, coming up with it because she doesn't know what to expect. This is, you know, she's been going so many years, she's on the older end, she's been going so many years in a traditional classroom, and now all of a sudden it's changing on her, and that's giving her anxiety. So, I mean, it's not what they're used to. It's different, and sometimes change is good, but this sounds like it's a stopgap solution instead of best practices for these children.
0: Yeah, for those kids that are already in the school, has the um, school system given any indication If you know, I was in fourth grade, and now I'm in a fourth-slash-fifth grade class, how you tell those kids that they're not being held Back, that they are still on the same schedule.
2: I think they're going. They're they're trying to be very clear that you're still, you know, you are you're in fourth grade. Yes, you're in a cl- classroom that has multiple grades in it, but you're a fourth grader. Uh, and, it, and I and at least you know the one one detail that I, I have heard, you know, the principal express that so they've been clear about is that all uh, the grade levels will be eating you know, uh, all the students in a particular grade level will be eating together.
3: That's like those clusters I had mentioned earlier.
2: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and uh, that mixed split fourth and fifth grade class, when the fourth graders go to eat, they will leave that classroom and go eat with their peers in the other class, and then, you know, uh, vice versa for the other half.
0: So with that, if they're missing, I guess, are they, is a the teacher teaching to, like, two different lessons and so one student they learn something then they go work on it and the next person gets their lesson and then they work on mm-hmm. it and switch back and forth
4: that's exactly it and that's the and that's the issue like so the teacher's teaching multiple classes at the same time which uh i understand happens at you know the high school it happens at all schools high school level and so on um but but we're not talking about high school students we're talking about kindergartners and first graders and second graders all the way to fifth grade so this is just going to be that much more difficult for the teachers um and once again while they are piecing this at you know now during the summer try to figure this out as much as they can uh this was not the plan like this was not planned out this is an ad hoc solution to to a staffing financial problem um if if this was a academic plan that they had time to implement and had processes in place and so on, we probably wouldn't be here. Um, But because this was, you know, the Band-Aid solution for a staffing financial issue, that's, that's the bigger concern.
3: And piggybacking off what he's saying a little bit, we don't know if this is forever or if this is, you know, just this year. We're all kind of hoping it's just this year, but at the same time, we just, like, when we ask those questions... They just don't know the answers to that. Everyone's still trying to piece it together and figure it out. Um, so look, going forward, we're trying to advocate for fixing the formula, getting more money in the budget. You know, That's what we're looking at is trying to push for that with FCPS.
0: And any concern that if your kid is in the split classroom that they're not going to get the same attention from a teacher that they would have been in a traditional classroom even if it was a larger number of students?
3: I don't know if I see a difference necessarily in that. Um, I just worry about the two different curriculums and again I just really worry about teacher burnout. Um, I have many teacher friends that are afraid to speak up because they don't want to lose their job but they have told me their biggest thing being a parent at Parkway is worrying about teacher burnout. It's just it's a lot to ask of a teacher. This is two curriculums versus one curriculum. And again, I feel like these teachers are already running and wearing themselves thin with multiple jobs already. So two, teaching two different classes is just sounds like a lot.
2: I mean, I, I've, you know, I've had friends that were teachers, and you know, I was amazed at the amount of prep work that they have to do especially when they're starting out and developing their lesson plans and whatnot. And, I mean, God bless them. I, c- I couldn't do that. And all that is like, you know, they get, you know, some amount of planning time, and that's required under their contract. But, uh, you know, it's this basically doubles the work, you know, for them. And it's, you know, going to be a challenge.
4: And my biggest concern is just the supervision of the children. Uh, we are basically cutting the staffing by 25%. With an increased number of kids, teaching them is second on my list to keeping them safe, and how are you going to supervise that many kids with twenty five percent less staff um, that's my biggest concern
2: yep and that's that's you know a ongoing issue until we get more resources into the school uh, I mean personal experience that you know my daughter came home one day with a bee sting. And we asked like, you know, how come the nurse didn't call us? Well, she didn't like go to the nurse or, you know, she was out on the playground with, you know, 30 other kids, you know, with just one other teacher. And maybe she could have like, you know, more specifically gotten the teacher's attention, but uh, her sting went unnoticed the entire day. And, you know, she, she, you know, some of it is on her to like bring attention to her, but. You know, it probably would have, like, we saw it immediately, like, you know, we could see it in her face, that there was something going on or something wrong. And and even, like, you know, that's more of, like, a bigger issue, but just the bathroom break. If you're outside playing on the recess, how do you, like, you know, if one kid has to run inside or do something, like, you you can't, like, divide yourself uh, so easily.
3: Yeah, that's my biggest concern, like I said earlier, with the clusters. I mean, it's not necessarily has anything personal to do with multi-grade classrooms that, question, but I do feel like the amount of adults in that building is less than it was le- this year, and they were, again, already running themselves thin, so that's when I simply just asked Dr. Albin, can we at least get instructional assistance in the building? I mean, we want teachers, but we'll take more adult supervision just to make our kids feel safe and us feel safe, especially on the playground for me personally. Um, but like I said, there's other many issues and concerns that people have um, for people, for children with 504s and IEPs and, you know, special hand washing because of allergies. That's a really big concern, not having enough adults, adults in that building.
0: And so with that, you know, have you felt that the school system has been responsive or is at least trying to address your needs?
3: Our principal has been amazing. Um, I just want to say, uh, Mrs. Brown has, she's doing the best she can. I feel like she personally is. Um, FCPS has been answering us a little bit more, a little bit more responsive with emails. We've been going to Board Ed meetings. Um, and I know sometimes, like Ed and Eric have had conversations with them afterwards with some of the board members and Dr. Albin. Um, but they're still not giving us what we want. <laughs>
2: I mean I don't know like how you know uh, how driven they are to resolve this. I mean I, I feel like we we brought this up this issue up in the spring. There's been adequate time, you know, to uh work out a temporary solution. And and in this case like you know the the conti- the funding for the contingency teachers that we need was already there. But they the the policy or their interpretation policy meant that they couldn't use those positions that were budgeted for. And I'm convinced it could have been as easy as you know uh, putting out a, you know, a, a memo or establishing a uh, and a policy you know to allow them to use it and and part of the part of the reason why they couldn't use these or they changed the way they re- would assign these uh, is that because they there wasn't a clear policy of assigning them. like the formula is very clear and you know, there's no like you know misinterpretation of it like you get this many. Um, maybe you'd argue about you know rounding. But, um, you know, the contingency positions were just, you know, as needed. And without a clear directive of what as needed means, um, they, they got themselves stuck in a corner of, well, we can't say how that is. And so we can't give them out or it'll mm-hmm. jeopardize our Title I funding. Um, I think that could have been just a memo that said if a class size is 120%, you know, the, from the ideal in the formula, then we'll put a teacher in there. And that's, and that would have, you know, been an easy way to represent what they were doing all along. It would have given us three teachers and would have assigned, you know, another maybe 10 teachers across the county in uh, elementary schools. And that was about what they had already planned for to use. But now we're here, you know, with school about to start and we have alternative, uh, you know, classroom arrangements and we're going to have to deal with these for the, you know, for the rest of the year.
4: There's also other repercussions because of the um, the new interpretation under Title I and how we can use our our funds uh, that go way beyond Parkway. I mean, uh, Thermont Primary School came down to speak to the Board of Education because they were losing – I forgot the numbers exactly. But a significant percentage of their uh, – what are they called? Special needs assistance or basically the staff that uh, – that uh,
3: I think it's special education instructional assistants, something like SEIAS. I think
4: some yeah, that basically staff members that are assigned to uh, students who have special needs. Um, and it's my understanding that they have a very good uh, in the prior years they've had very good uh, student with needs to assistant ratios. Um, and now uh, with the they're losing staff and it's going to like one assistant to is it fifteen kids with special needs that they said at the meeting. Um, But that's really becoming a safety issue for the Thurmont Primary School, and they have a a real need there. Um, And then some other schools have come to the Board of Education meetings, you know, describing similar concerns that they're losing staffing. And this all goes back to uh, the the impetus of this is the reinterpretation of how Title I funds are used at, uh, at the county level. But the underlying problem is the inflexible formula, which we're working with the board to adjust, And, um, and funding that has basically, we've been, we have for the past 10 to 15 years, we, the county has dug itself into a financial hole with education that we are now just beginning to start digging ourselves out of. Now, the, the county council and the executive, uh, and the, uh, and the county executive have provided more funding than in previous years to the school board, but it's still not enough to get us back to where we need to be just to staff the schools, um, so we got, we got to work together and figure out a solution for this, um, and increase, uh, the resources to the school board and, and and then also have the school board give, give them the flexibility to use those resources in a proper way.
3: Um, Frederick County is rated 23rd out of 24 counties in the state of Maryland for, uh, 2019 for ranking of total per pupil funding. Yeah. And that's. I mean, I don't think we're a rural county that's... I I grew up on the Eastern Shore, and I was really surprised to hear that my county that I grew up in and some of the surrounding counties were way above Frederick County. So those numbers really are, are alarming and need to be raised. But we are just above Hartford County, and Hartford County has been having a huge battle with the county on education and funding. So it, it when you look at the numbers and look at where we're near and who we're by it it's very alarming with Frederick County I I feel like we should be a lot higher on our per-pupil f- funding.
4: And this raises, and this leads us down another path of where, where does the business community, where does the local f- Frederick County economy want to lead us? Do we want to have, you know, one of the best education, best educated workforces, best educated populations to attract businesses and attract uh, people to live here? We're competing against, uh, you know, the D.C. suburbs, basically, and as far as, you know, people moving into the area. What kind of school system do we want? Uh, and where do we see the county going in the future? These are all avenues that that, that this one issue just highlights for us, um, and and the funding concerns that that we have discovered, um, you know, has basically brought a lot of concern to the to the parents and neighborhoods of the, of the of the area. All
0: right. Well, I think we've answered all my questions. But anything else that you think we should know or that we should at least highlight?
2: I mean, kind of on the on the uh, the counter argument to the to uh, you know, our funding, I mean, it's it's true we are, you know, uh, it, it's embarrassingly low uh, per people funding, you know, and I mean, we should really be, you know, ideally with our you know competitive uh, counties, you know, Montgomery County, Howard County, um, and you know, somewhat on par with them,
4: even at Carroll County level, we're yeah. not even at yeah. Carroll County no. level,
2: yeah. but I mean, like I, I do have to say, like we. You know, I don't know if there's numbers. I'm just, I'm sure there are, but we're probably doing really well with the money that we have. You know? Yes. And I, and I think, I think our school system has a lot of great programs. I mean, my son's at Frederick High School. You know, beautiful new school. They have, you know, uh, uh, they've opened up a lot of uh, alternate learning, you know, situ- uh, you know, um, programs, where he can like, you know, go in early or stay later for schools. It's great. You know, I love that program and its flexibility that they have there. But imagine, like, what we could do if we were getting, you know, Probably funding you. like on par. Yeah.
4: And, and to Eric's point, as I, as I've dived into the numbers here um, and into the budget and so on, uh, to to the county's credit and to the school board's credit, they have been extremely responsible with the public dollars. Um, I think uh, a little too responsible, in that they are so concerned about having any waste that uh, that they don't speak up enough. Um, but now that, now that we're seeing the, this, these gaps in funding, um, we are trying to push the county. We're beginning to start to push the county council, and the county executive, uh, to, to give a little more, uh, a little more resources to the school board. They're, they're, we have n- we as we're diving in and talking to people around the county and the school board uh, and education system. There's, we haven't found any waste. It's not like oh, if you cut here, we can have staffing. It, this is much more of an issue. Is like there's just not enough you know pennies to go around.
3: Yeah, I mean, I have the numbers in front of me. And Frederick, 2019 ranking of total per pupil funding was thirteen thousand nine hundred seventy dollars. Well, the highest county is Worcester, which is a hard one to compound, compete with is 18,472 but that just shows you how big of a difference frederick county is on the bottom versus the top it's a it's a big difference
4: and then two more uh two more dollar figures to throw out there so um the the school board has provided some information if we were to get fully staffed now fully staffed is what that means is open to debate um but the board gave us the numbers that we would need something like $11.6 million to fully staff all the schools uh, across the county, um, and to fill any of the shortfalls that we have. Now, does that mean a teacher in every properly sized classroom, or does that mean a teacher plus an aide plus any other assistance in every properly sized classroom? That we still haven't gotten definition of, but fully staff is rounding up $12 million. In addition to that, we also have a $400 million uh, shortfall in in maintenance, in deferred maintenance. So that does not mean that our schools are falling apart, but what it does mean is that there are things that that are due to be replaced or repaired that the school board is pushing off because they're being so responsible with our funds. Um, But now we're at $400 million. At what point are are we kicking the can down the road so far that it's just gonna come back and bite us? if we were just to focus on fully staffing the schools and ignoring the deferred maintenance and ignoring everything else that's, uh, that is not being accounted for in the budget, um, the, on average, that would come out to, if you look at the US Census uh, information on number of households in the county, and you're looking at, the, at a rounding up of a $12 million shortfall just to fully staff the schools, that is a property tax increase, if this were to fully be funded by property tax increase, of roughly $130 per household. That's on average. Some people pay less, some people pay more, but $130 per household on average will fully staff the county's uh, school system. Once again, fully staff is open to debate what that means, Um, but that's something that we should look into and also talk to the county council and county executive to see if we can come up with that $12 million from other sources. Um, So that's, that's one of the avenues that we are beginning to go down and talk to our elected officials about.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Um, You definitely answered a lot of my questions. Um, And we really appreciate you guys coming in and talking about this issue. Thank Thank you you. for having us. Thank you. So now let's turn over to our 72 hours. All right, Kate. So I understand that you did a pretty interesting food review because it went quite outside of your normal boundaries for what you review
5: yes and you know we we've drafted policies here for reviews at the news post so I wouldn't quite call it a review because this week I went and ate the impossible Whopper at Burger King Um, and I don't technically review chain restaurants but I do tell everyone what the experience was like just because this has attracted so much media attention that I figured you know people who might not ordinarily order
0: this might want to know what it's like So I'm going to have to say, um, going from some of the taste buds or now food reviews that I've gone on with you, um, uh, Whopper is quite a a much cheaper date than what I'm used to. to. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But is the Impossible Whopper everything that the media and everyone has said it's going to
5: be? Well, I mean, like, I don't know necessarily that people were hyping, like, the taste or the quality of the Impossible Whopper. I mean, to me, what's really interesting is – Like what's interesting about it is you think about Impossible Foods, which is the company that makes impossible, you know, like meat, quote unquote. It's a meat alternative that's based on soy. They actually managed to isolate some of the the proteins from soy roots to make a meat substitute that's very, very, very reminiscent of, I would say, like finely ground beef. So texturally, it's very similar. And When Impossible Meats first debuted, like the only place you could get it was one of David Chang's restaurant chains in New York City. He did this Impossible Burger and it attracted a ton of media attention and it was a big deal. And David Chang, of course, you know, is in charge of the Momofuku restaurant empire. So he's like a very, very influential culinary figure. So this meat was like something that was for foodies, for lack of a better word. You know, it was kind of this like niche meat that was only available, you know, it kind of excluded. Restaurants and now it's at Burger King. So, you know, there's no better sign that this company is growing and that sort of like the vegetarian mindset has really cap you know, like has really. Incorporated a lot of Americans, although what 's interesting and somewhat ironic <laughs> is that um, the impossible burger at burger or the impossible whopper at Burger King is not vegetarian unless you specifically request that they cook it differently than they do their regular meat because otherwise it 's just put under the same broiler as like their regular beef burgers, so keep that in mind, um, but yes, I did go and try one of those for my food feature and so
0: did it taste like a hamburger? Mm-hmm.
5: I would say, and I I wrote this in my story, that like an impossible Whopper is to a regular beef burger what like an orange LaCroix is to a full calorie Fanta orange soda. It's like... It's like a whisper, (laughs) like reminiscent of real beef. I mean, texturally, it's very similar, I think, to like fast food chain quality ground hamburger. Um, But what you really notice like by side by side comparison is the difference in taste where it's kind of like your mind fills in the void and you're distracted by like the bread and the mayonnaise and the pickles. Um, But the difference is that at the end of the Impossible Burger, you get kind of this nuttiness where you're like, okay, like that comes from a plant. That's like a grain taste versus like you know you do get some irony tang from the burger the regular whopper at burger king well, i
0: think it's interesting because like, you know in the past couple i think you had also had an impossible burger when we went to the vegan place in right. West virginia and just a bach car burger so compared to those other burgers that you've had that this impossible meat would you prefer to get it cooked at a nice restaurant versus going to the burger king yeah like if
5: i was i mean the 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 ver- the Burger King Whopper is of course like it's cheaper. I mean, it's actually still about double the cost of a regular. Whopper, But, you know, like, you know, the assets for that is it's, it's cheaper still than most other Impossible Burgers that you might get in a nicer restaurant. It's more convenient. You know, it has all the same qualities of fast food. But, I mean, like, I've had better Impossible Burgers. Like, I really liked the Impossible Burger I had at Boxcar Burgers when we went the other week. But it's still not – the Burger King version still isn't bad, you know. And I would say that, like, it's not the same. Whenever you eat an Impossible Burger, it's not quite the same as a regular hamburger but it's so close and you know there it's much better for the environment um you know there are other reasons to kind of consume that meat alternative
0: yeah, it's interesting because when i had impossible burger um back when it came out it also went up into massachusetts when i was there and they did it into a meatball mm-hmm. and i kind of thought this could i could see this being a really good fast food option just because you mentioned like it's like really fine grain kind of reminded me a little bit about what you might get at at burger king so yeah i mean it's still really cool in the sense that they have a now an easy option for i guess if you mentioned that you want to cook vegetarian but besides that an easier option for those who are trying to cut out some meat
5: well and i think that's what the thing it's like the thing the beauty of impossible meats is that it's convenient like if you're a vegetarian I would not eat a black bean burger every day just because I would get sick of it, and they're kind of gross. But I could eat an Impossible burger every day. You know, it's just kind of like a, a fast and easy lunch.
0: Yeah, and I think something with them is that they've also mentioned that you know, if you're a vegetarian, you're never consuming meat. Eat, Im- using an Impossible burger may not be the most environmentally conscious because it still requires a lot of water for soy. But if you're someone who cu- eats meat all the time and you replace your meat with Impossible, I think it's supposed to be better for I mean, environment.
5: It is. It is substantial better for the environment. I mean, there's an analysis done by an independent consultant firm called Qantas. And, you know, the footprint for an Impossible Burger is 89% smaller than it is for a beef burger. So, you know, like, if you're going vegetarian, I mean, I will say that it's not much healthier. Like, calorically, (laughs) the Impossible Whopper and the regular Whopper are almost identical. But if you're someone who's interested in vegetarianism from an environmental standpoint, I mean, there are definitely solid reasons to go with Impossible Foods.
0: So what's your, your take? If you're... Trying to cut down meat, this is a really good option. Or if you're a vegetarian, good option. Yeah, I would say, you know, like if you're a vegetarian and you want a
5: fast and easy meal on the road, like you could definitely do an impossible Whopper. Just
0: make sure you ask that it's cooked differently. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Perfect. Well, um, you know... You are much more than your food review. So what else can we be excited to read about now in 72 hours? Well, you know, since I'm like very basic,
5: you might know that I really love reality TV. And in the office, I talk a lot about um, the Bachelor franchise. But there's another show that I've really come to love called 90 Day Fiancé. And I started watching this with one of my best friends from college in Brooklyn. And the conceit of 90 Day Fiancé is you take two strangers, one from the U.S., one from abroad, and they usually meet online. And then, you know, the usually the, fee, like, the conceit of 90-day fiancé is generally that the, the fiancé from abroad comes to America, gets a special type of visa, which grants, like, a 90-day stay to, like, the betrothed of American citizens, and then those couples have to figure out whether they're going to make it work. Like, in 90 days, it's like, okay, are we going to get married so this person can go then, you know, get a permanent U.S. visa, or is love dead, and are they going to go back to their home country and shambles? Well, this summer, TLC debuted like a flip formula, which has become astronomically popular and is actually really, really genius, called 90 Day Fiancé the Other Day, or excuse me, 90 Day Fiancé the Other Way. And the stakes are higher in this because you're seeing American citizens who are going to like abandon their whole lives to go move to a foreign country for their significant other. And there is excitingly a Frederick resident, Tiffany Franco, on this summer. Season. Um, And, you know, like what's really interesting to me is that I think that in terms of the show, she has one of the most relatable and I guess like root forable relationships on the show. Um, so I got to talk to her and it was very exciting.
0: So I want to take a quick side note and just tell everyone about how Kate found out she's going to get to do this story because we were at her apartment, her former apartment. Um, her roommate was moving out and Kate, so everyone was kind of somber. We were all sad and Kate started screaming because <laughs> she found out that there was a Frederick resident that was on 90 Day Fiance. Yeah. She was like, I'm going to get this girl. So yeah. you got this girl. What was the first question you asked her? I,
5: I mean, I think the first question I asked was basically how she and her fiance now husband Ronald met because I just I mean it was like I will say that I in my mind I was kind of visualizing this like weeks long feature where I just hung out with them and learned about their life and in reality I was given like a 20 minute interview by TLC so it was not quite the access Mm -hmm. I wanted but I think the first the the first thing I asked her was just like okay well tell me how you guys met because if you watch the show like the whole the whole point of their relationship is they meet in south africa and they fall in love but then she learns that he has a gambling addiction and a ton of criminal charges which is why she has to go to south africa to be with him because he's not like a great candidate for u.s visa like based on his background record um so i learned and they met you know she was um going on a trip to south africa she went on vacation with a friend and she was actually kind of like grumpy during the vacation on the way there she had gotten stuck in turkey for four days during a snowstorm so because they flew turkish airlines so by the time she got there she was already kind of over it originally she had wanted to go to greece so south africa wasn't her dream destination and then they were going out to bars and clubs and then one of their friends in south africa was like hey guys do you mind if i bring along one of my friends to this bar one night and so of course they said yes and it was ronald and she said that at first you know she gave him kind of a cold reception in the car because she was tired, you know, and didn't really feel like going out that night. But then at the bar, they started talking, and it was just like an instant connection. And they really... um kicked it off and then seven months later she flew back to South Africa and he proposed but then on that trip her friend Angelique sent her you know like a bunch of messages and was like oh my gosh you have to check this out And there's all these screenshots you know and sort of receipts on his past and all his issues so my second question of course was like well girl like why why stay with this man from South Africa who like I, I mean I know that he's like you can tell on the show that he's like very charming and everything but also he got engaged and he he didn't tell you that he had been arrested and put in jail and i mean she i think that she described it well and it's basically like well she had gotten engaged to this man and she had decided she had made this commitment and you know she was ready to say i do you know which comes with the assumption that you're going to stick with that person through thick and thin so she didn't want to just walk from the relationship
0: well i i'm Sure, you can't tell us everything. Yeah,
5: well, I didn't even get to be told everything, which was very disappointing. Mm -hmm. So, like, I can't spoil anything. I can't say where they're living now because, of course, you know, like, you have to keep watching to see whether they end up in South Africa together or not or what happens. But I will say that um, in July, they dropped on Instagram that they had had a baby together, Carly Rose. So, um, you know, they do have that commitment together.
0: And now, if I understand from your uh, your office discussions Mm -hmm. um this was not her
5: first child no she did um she did have a child a son daniel who's super cute he's nine and he was born in new jersey from previous relationship and was
0: that a i can't believe i'm
5: pregnant situation yeah well like that's i mean i wish that i wanted to ask her about this too as much as it you know is kind of like into the details but she on the show she said that she did not know she was pregnant with Daniel until she went into labor and even then she went to the hospital and was like oh I'm having stomach pains and they're like oh girl you're 10 centimeters dilated so yeah it was also an I didn't know I was pregnant situation
0: well this girl just sounds like meant for reality TV (laughs) she's so nice I really
5: want her and Ronald to work out I really do I want to believe that love is real and can overcome all
0: Well, here's hoping to uh, here's hoping for Ronald and Tiffany. Yes, that they are living happily in South Africa. Um, I guess everyone will have to watch and I know if not, I'm sure you can follow Kate on Twitter. I'm sure she will be tweeting out whether they survive or not. so, but now it's a little, again, more a little bit more serious. I understand that there's a possible nether logo that's being discussed in Frederick and it's not the City of Frederick. Yeah, so <laughs> if
5: you liked the drama over the City of Frederick logo, you'll love the drama. I mean, actually, that's an unfair characterization. <laughs> like, it's not really, I don't want to say that it's like, I don't want to be a rabble rouser and say that it's dramatic. But yeah, um, the National Civil War Museum, if you're familiar with it, has an existing logo, which is basically, um, you know, a, a 33-starred Union flag On one side, which is like the American flag Because the Union (laughs) won the war Um, And then in the middle is You know, um, a catechist, like the Medical symbol with the staff and the snake And then on the other side is A Confederate flag um, And the logo was devised, you know, when the Museum was uh, was born Was founded in the 90s And at the time, it kind of made sense Because that was the purpose of the museum It was like, okay, it's about the Civil War Which was the Union of Confederacy And then, of course, the medical advances That happened during the Civil War But then in the intervening, gosh, like, you know, 20 years almost, a lot has happened, and the museum now o- operates two other sites in Ketiesville Maryland, and the Clara Barton Museum for Missing Soldiers in Washington, D.C., and, you know, their focus has changed and expanded a little bit, and then also, you know, it's fair to say that the Confederate flag has become more of a focus point in national conversation. I mean, everyone remembers, you know, the the protests in Charlottesville, where they were a symbol wielded by white nationalist groups. You know, there are Confederate monuments being removed across the country. We've had Confederate monuments, or you know, like slaveholders, that were removed from their places of prominence in the city of Frederick. And the museum is already launching a rebranding effort, and with that comes a decision of whether or not to remove the Confederate flag in the logo. So that's something that they're considering right now. And there's a public
0: survey out to solicit to solicit feedback. Well, and this is really interesting because I think when people talked about taking down the statues, it was like, well, these don't belong in places of prominence. They belong in. Museums. So it's very Mm -hmm. interesting that the museum is considering changing its logo and what it means to have a Confederate flag in its logo because that's theoretically the argument, oh, these belong in museums. Well,
5: and that's what's what's really interesting is that in 2016, like the Tourism Bureau for D.C. actually refused to print an advertisement for the museum in its brochure. Like it had, you know, the the museum had had a place in their brochure and then in 2016, they said, well, we won't print this um, because of the Confederate flag. And at the time, that's exactly what Executive Director um, David Price of the National Civil War Museum told me he was like well they were saying that the only appropriate place for the flag is a museum and we are a museum so I kind of reserved the right not to change it but it's interesting because I think that he even said that his thinking has evolved a little bit in that you know given the change in scope um, at the museum and the additional sites he's not quite sure if it's the perfect logo anymore and then also he does worry that it's alienating or he told me that he's worried that it's alienating people who might not come into the museum because of that imagery um, which is always a concern and of course like I spoke to Willie Mahone who's the um, president of the Frederick chapter of the NAACP and a member of SURGE which is showing up for racial justice which is another group that has a chapter here in Frederick and their point was kind of both of their points was kind of like well yeah it's not appropriate to have a confederate flag which is a symbol that you know if if not historically, has at least been co-opted, you know, by groups promoting racial hatred. It's just not appropriate to have that on a public building, in a public museum. But then, of course, you have people like Stephen Berryman. Um, he's a Frederick resident who, who, is, who heads a Facebook group sort of geared towards protecting confederate monuments and he said that it was whitewashing history you know and mentioned that he would not support removing the logo because it's just a historical symbol that shouldn't be removed even if people find it offensive you know so there are a variety of points on both sides
0: and just because you remove it from a logo doesn't necessarily mean you're taking it out of the museum at all you're just saying this is what our new brand is
5: well that's the thing i just want to emphasize that that it's like Price was very clear that this would be a branding decision, but it's not like Confederate, you know, artifacts, you know, or any mention of the Confederate Army would be removed from the war. Because, of course, you know, um, like I think their 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 tagline is if I might paraphrase it a little bit, but it's, you know, divided by conflict, united by compassion, and the whole point is that, you know, especially after the Battle of Antietam, soldiers from both sides of the war kind of converged on Frederick with all these catastrophic injuries, and the whole town basically mobilized to become a huge medical center, um, you know, which had a huge bearing
0: on, like, army medical responses today. Well, very cool, and that's a nice little message about unity. (laughs) Um, So I know that you have your what I love column that you'll be doing. um, But I understand that you'll be doing something special with it coming up um, that I'm not too excited about. But can you tell us a little bit more about how you'll be phrasing one of your last what I love. Yeah
5: so well this this upcoming one um, for the Thursday the 29th is about soshu which is a type of um, it's a it's a Japanese spirit that's actually made from barley and I really loved learning about that because um, there's a company called the American Soshu Company here in Frederick. They actually work from the Fitzy Incubator and um, founder Taco Amano and his wife are some of the only people in North America making this spirit. Usually it's only found in Japan so I format added it a little bit differently I made it kind of like a question and answer type thing because I just found so much um like I learned so much information that I was eager to share about the spirit because I get like very nerdy about food Mm -hmm. things um so that was really interesting but yes so the week after I won't be on the podcast but you know you will be reading my what I love which is kind of my farewell to Frederick because this is my last full week at the news post um and then I am leaving for a new job so I will not be covering features anymore so where are you going um, well, I can't announce that officially yet, but it is another it is another publication towards DC in like the in Bethesda.
0: So I'm excited about that. Well, I have to personally say that I'm, I am very sad that I'll be losing all the free meals from um, <laughs> going out with Kate. I know no more reviews. There'll also be no more bread in the office because uh, Kate always brought us bread <laughs> that she personally made, which was delicious. Um but Kate, thank you so much for. Coming on the podcast, I know we kind of said, hey, this is a new thing you're gonna be doing. Um, I know that a lot of people I'm sure will be missing um, you when we have to talk about 72 hours, especially your knowledge of the city ordinance and (laughs) (laughs) your love of the Maryland room um, and all the other uh, very interesting food things. Um, I'm sure there's some people who are kind of glad you're leaving over some food reviews, but I know that there are (laughs) plenty more who are gonna be missing you. Um, But since it's your last podcast, People can still continue to read Kate she'll be doing some um articles uh for seventy two hours coming up um, yeah i'll have
5: a, I, I'll have a few more articles like in the next couple weeks after I leave because we
0: always write ahead but since we know you love the city ordinance so much, what is one thing about the city ordinance that you didn't get to write about that you are fascinated by
5: oh um you know I feel like i have i have it you know there's no, i feel like there has, isn't really one particularly egregious city ordinance um, story that I haven't covered, like just in terms, you know, because I've kind of done a lot with what is and isn't allowed in Frederick, which I personally find fascinating based on like a lot of these old ordinances. Um, I would have loved to write about the homeless issue in Frederick. That's one thing that I kind of regret not being able to fit in time to do Um, just because I think that it's really related to an an article that I'm working on right now about affordable housing. I was very surprised to hear, you know, that during a recent Planning Commission meeting, there were people who booed the city, you know, for recommending um, changing the zoning to allow a permanent shelter to set up. Um, And to me, that was surprising. And It it makes me wonder about the city's future, so I would have loved to cover that, um, but I'm sure that everyone else in the office will do a fantastic job after I leave.
0: All right, Kate, is there anything else that you think we should know on your last time on this podcast?
5: Mm, Just, it's been my pleasure covering Frederick. I've loved covering the art scene, um, and I will miss everyone
0: here in the office very much. (laughs) All right. Well, you can read uh, Kate's work in 72 hours, um, and you can continue to read it for the next couple weeks, and then... um Seventy two hours will continue with the new reporter. Yes. (laughs) right. well Kate, thank you so much for coming on for your very last time. (laughs) Thank you, Heather. Frederick and Cut is produced by me, Heather Mangilio, and edited by Graham Cullen. We'll see you next week.